Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 8th of February 2021 and this is episode 194. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to freelance historian Simon Jones about his research into chemical weapons during the Great War. Simon spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Windsor, Berkshire. Hi Simon, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I'm a former museum curator, now a freelance historian, interested in First World War really since my teens, and luckily enough to have been able to make a career in military museums, um, but now working as an author and a battlefield tour guide. And, and so what's your area of research and why do you think it's important? Well, I became interested in warfare in First World War very early on in my my interest in the Great War, and it seemed to exemplify the horrific experience of that conflict. But I could find very little information at that time. We're talking about the 1980s, and had to go to the National Archives to find the information I was looking for. Many years on, more has been written on the subject, but I think still books about the First World War still don't always show enough understanding about how chemical weapons functioned at different stages in the war, particularly the major role that they played in 1918. And I think also there's a view that somehow chemical weapons were vastly more horrific and inhumane than any other weapon used in the war. And my research quite quickly led me to conclude that there's little to choose in, in humanity between chemical weapons and, say, conventional high explosive. So when we talk about chemical weapons, what exactly do we mean? Well, any chemical except explosive tended to cause harm. So usually these are gases, uh, but many chemical weapons are not gas. So mustard gas is actually a liquor, and solids were also used in the form of particular or toxic smoke. So what was the status of chemical weapons um, before the outbreak of the Great War? Most nations had signed and ratified a declaration made at the Hague Conference in 1899, whereby they would abstain from the use of projectiles, the sole object which was the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases. And Britain eventually ratified that in 1907. Uh, Interestingly, the USA never did, uh, but that agreement didn't stop uh, Britain or Germany or France from conducting research into chemical weapons before the First World War, uh, especially following uh, the stalemate of the Russo-Japanese War, 1904 to 1905. And where, where did where did this sort of like awareness of chemical weapons come from? I don't know whether you've done any research on that. Well, we can we can get right back to the ancient Greeks and Greek fire, but also in the Napoleonic era, Admiral Cochrane was proposing the use of sulphur fumes, and then uh, his descendant, Earl of Dundonald, proposed something similar during the Crimean War, the idea that you would use toxic fumes, toxic smoke, drift across your enemy, but in particular to eject your enemy from a strong fortified position. And uh, in fact, Dundonald, uh, in 1915, uh, the Dundonald resurrected his ancestors' idea that he thought was some terrible secret and posed it to Haig, uh, who said in March 1915, well, how are you going to arrange for a favourable wind, uh, somewhat prophetically? So there was an idea about them, but there wasn't a 
uh, perhaps the technical and scientific knowledge uh, amongst, in particular, the military in 1915 to fully understand what their potential was. And what sort of deployable, um, I was wondering whether before the, the war broke out, whether anybody had any sort of deployable weapons that they could use and when weapons were first deployed on the eastern and western fronts. So the weapons that had been developed by Britain, France and Germany really focused on non-lethal tear gases and uh, the French were probably the first to actually develop a weapon which uh, they produced for riot control. So they have they had a cartridge be fired from a carbine, very similar really in appearance to modern anti-riot weapons and they issued it to their armies in September or October 1914 uh, against the Hague Green incidentally, uh, a weapon that you develop for riot control against your own population isn't covered by an international rule about war, uh, but once you deploy it on the battlefield, then obviously it is. And the Germans later used this to justify their own developed chemical weapons. The Germans were uh, quite keen on trying different types of weapons. They tried a form of shrapnel shell in October 1914 with an irritant substance. No one seems to have noticed that. It didn't really work. And then they tried a tear gas shell on the Eastern Front. This is more well known used at uh, Bolymoff on the Eastern Front, 31st of January 1915, fired quite a lot of these shells, but it said that it was too cold, really, for the tear gas to have any effect. And again, as far as it was even noticed, uh, it didn't really uh, have uh, had much effect. They used these shells again around Ypres in March of 1915, and they were certainly noticed by the Brit British, but they weren't really very effective. And it's perhaps these tear gas shells being used around Ypres and not being very good that meant when the Allies had more serious intelligence warnings about a gas attack being prepared at Ypres in March, April 1915. Perhaps that's why they really didn't take them very seriously. And this is one of the great intelligence failures of the war. The fact that German prisoners came to the Allies, deserters, showed them their gas masks and said, this is what's going to happen. We've got cylinders full of gas uh, dug into our trenches. And the Germans had uh, installed 6,000 cylinders at Ypres. Initially, south of Ypres, and the wind never conveniently blew in the right direction. They moved those cylinders of chloric gas to the north and eventually, 5pm on the 22nd of April, the wind was blowing in the right direction. They opened the cylinders and it blew uh, a large gap in the French lines to the north of Ypres. Killing, we don't know how many, killing perhaps between 800 and 1,000 uh, uh, French troops uh, and causing panic, causing huge alarm to the Allies because it seemed the Germans had found the way of breaking through the trench deadlock. So this is the famous inauguration, the spectacular and dramatic first uh, lethal gas attack of the war. And so how did chemical weapons develop from that sort of initial chlorine attack um, to sort of more complex and sophisticated weapons uh, by 1918? Well, that, that first first lethal attack, very crude method, simply opening the taps of the cylinders and allowing wind to, to carry it over. And during the ensuing uh, three years, there's a massive, complex development of chemical warfare. So there's five five types of agents, and they use in overlapping phrases, uh, phase, uh, I should say, during the war. So I've mentioned tear gas, the lacrimators, used in shells, sometimes grenades, uh, non-lethal, uh, effective for sort of harassment of troops, counter-battery work in particular to prevent um, gunners from firing their guns, and used from 1914 right through to the end of the war, especially uh, by the British, because it's one of the, the gases that the British can produce more easily. Uh, but then, quite quickly after that, we have the lethal lung irritant phase, chlorine gas initially, but then phosgene is about 100 times more poisonous. It takes over the related diphosgene Germans use in shells and it causes death or injury by this irritation of the lungs causing uh, victims to in effect drown in the, the fluids that their lungs are releasing try to, to remove the irritation from the lungs. 
supplied in cylinders from 1915 uh, and from artillery shells, uh, Verdun, early 1916. And the phosgene shell gas phase, again, lasts really for the whole war. Uh, third type, sensory irritants or sternutators, and these are designed to penetrate respirator filters first used by the British in 1916 in the form of chloropicrin. And these are non-lethal, but they can cause sneezing or choking, supposed to force the victims to remove their masks and succumb to uh, a lethal gas, like phosgene, that's being used at the same time. So uh, the Germans used Blue Cross shells from 1917 containing an arsenic uh, dust that caused intense pain to the sinuses. Never as effective as the Germans thought they were, but it's one of the, the, the main German shells that, uh, that, that they employed. So the fourth type, uh, vesicants or skin blistering agents, specifically mustard gas, a liquid with a low boiling point, evaporated in sunlight. And the Germans used this from July 1917. Uh, the Allies, uh, about a year afterwards, using it in the final months of the war. And finally, uh, less well known as chemical weapons incendiaries, thermite, red or white phosphorus, used in grenades and artillery projectiles, uh, and also as smoke juices, effective in forcing troops out of dugouts and, and destroying those dugouts. Uh, and throughout the war, it was the Germans who led Dutch and uh, introduction of different chemical agents. Uh, and this is really because of their highly developed chemical industry and dye stuff industry, but also the considerable abilities of Fritz Haber, director of Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Physical Chemistry, and uh, really a, a leading force behind the German use of chemical weapons. And how did the, I mean, this is a, a side question, but how did the delivery mechanisms of chemical weapons change over the course of the war? So his delivery mechanisms, uh, we've mentioned cylinders, and that uh, artillery shells came to take over. Uh, artillery shells are obviously uh, less dependent on the wind to get your chemicals where you want them to. But in terms of payload, artillery shells are quite limited. And it's in terms of developing a very effective uh, means of delivery that uh, we find the main British contribution. This is the Livins projector, first used in an early form during the Somme, October, November uh, 1916, uh, and then in its final form at Arras in 1917. And this was a very crude type of mortar, simply install hundreds of smoothbore tubes in the ground containing, each containing a cylinder of gas, fired electrically with gunpowder, hurled through the air simultaneously. So you may have five, six, seven, eight hundred or more cylinders of gas all landing at more or less the same place on uh, German positions, all releasing gas simultaneously. Concentration of gas could be such that uh, German, German respirators would be penetrated and exhausted, or the Germans would simply not have time to put their masks on. So that was the main British contribution to chemical warfare, this means of delivery. And shell, gas in shells is really the most flexible and versatile, versatile means of using chemical weapons and comes to replace this uh, crude uh, method of, of releasing it from cylinders uh, during the war. And was there any aerial bombardment used uh, with chemical weapons? No, it was talked about a lot. There was uh, quite, a, quite a lot of anxiety in Britain, say in 1917, that this would happen. But um, apart from possibly isolated experiment didn't happen during the war. Uh, the British seem to have been uh, the first. There is actually rumour of some, some Italian use very early on, even possibly before the First World War. Uh, the British used a, uh, a Blue Cross weapon that had been developed at the end of the war uh, and was taken to North Russia, found to be uh, useless in North Russia because the wind didn't blow in the right direction and there were too many 
any trees. And so they, they modified this and dropped it out of aeroplanes in 1919. Uh, and this is, as far as I know, the main first British use of, of gas bombs from the air. The problem with dropping gas from the air is that uh, your payload is even smaller, potentially, than an artillery shell. You'd need a lot, uh, a lot of bombs to uh, produce any sort of concentration of gas. So it was something that caused a lot of anxiety also in Britain in the 1930s and led to, obviously, everyone in Britain uh, getting a gas mask. Uh, but it never happened because it was it's not really a feasible uh, form of chemical warfare. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully there because of what's what's been happening in Syria. There's these very crude bombs being dropped out of helicopters containing uh, chlorine, which will work against unprotected uh, civilians. But on the battlefield, it hasn't it didn't find any utility. That brings me neatly on to, to thinking about what sort of measures did the Allies take against chemical weapons and how did these develop over the, over the time and how effective were they? Well, although the Allies failed to make German chlorine gas attack, there was a pretty rapid response by issuing chemically impregnated pads to neutralise chlorine gas. Uh, notoriously, some soldiers were told to urinate in a sock or a handkerchief um, at, after these first attacks in April 1915. But um, this could actually be effective against dilute chlorine gas. And in fact, the effectiveness of these very crude pads with an alkaline solution meant that the Germans never repeated their first success of 22nd of April when they followed up with about a dozen attacks during April and May 1915 around. So even the most crude, seemingly crude pads could protect against chlorine gas. Um, British then adopted a system of pregnant cloth hoods, P and PH helmets, and the French retained the principle of these impregnated mouth pads. And these were both inadequate increasing concentration, far more dangerous phosgene that the Germans were mixing into their cylinder gas attacks in 1915 and early 1916. And the Germans actually led the way with the first modern gas attack, October 1915, close-fitting uh, rubberized mask with circular eyepieces to which you would screw a separate filter. And the separate filter uh, means that you can change the contents of that filter to reflect new chemical agents uh, being used. Because there's a there's a constant arms race, constant to and fro during the war with um, both sides trying to anticipate the new chemical agents that they might have to protect against uh, masks, which are trying to protect against a whole range of different chemicals. And the British really led the way in dealing with having to protect against a massive range of chemicals with a box respirator, where you have a large filter box containing multiple means of neutralising and filtering the chemical agents that uh, you would have to breathe through. Uh, British Army only began to issue box respirator universally once it was compact enough to, to fit on a man's chest. So this is a small box respirator that British scientists have developed really by the autumn of 1916. And by April 1917, every British soldier has got one of these uh, very effective masks. Uh, the French adopted a mask similar to the German type uh, November 1917. Uh, but all of these masks were only effective with constant training and inspection. So, so the gas discipline, gas morale become very important to troops. Uh, and just having wearing a mask for long, you're exhausting, diminished a soldier's effectiveness quite significantly. Uh, but I, I suggest that actually gas masks, as developed during the First World War, uh, represent a, a massive, maybe unprecedented blunting of the effectiveness of a weapon. Uh, and both sides had changed their gas tax to reflect uh, protection. Uh, both sides always wanted to find a means of defeating their opponent's masks while keeping one step ahead of new developments in their defence. suppose I'm just wondering, what was the defence against a sort of skin-blistering agents like mustard gas? Well, yeah, I mean, it was very difficult to get against because it was a, a, a completely new principle. The Germans, incidentally, didn't realise that mustard gas would be so effective as a skin blister. They were looking for another type of lung irritant that was more persistent than, than, uh, than lighter than air gas. Uh, so 
there, there were two aspects to it. There were treatment, obviously, afterwards. So treatment in hospitals, and uh, they had to find ways of treating the blisters and the temporary blindness that mustard gas caused, um, but also to decontaminate. Chloride of lime was found to be effective in decontaminating areas that had been sprayed with the liquid of the must gas, uh, and um, drills were developed. Troops were trained. Each Italian would have a, a squad, a mustard gas squad, who would be issued with uh, some protective clothing. Uh, the French pioneered the use of protective clothing in 1917 so that these squads would have overalls that were supposed to protect them uh, against mustard gas. The British were quite sceptical about that and didn't really issue so many overalls. Uh, and again, it became a question of training and discipline. By 1918, by the Hunt Days uh, uh, battles of 1918, in fact, uh, Allied troops, in particular the French, got very good at uh, avoiding the contamination of mustard gas and being able to advance through contaminated zones that had been shelled with mustard gas. So uh, your respirator also would give you protection against inhaling the vapour of mustard gas, but uh, the British in particular didn't, really didn't follow the line of trying to give every soldier some kind of overall uh, uh, protective clothing. It was up to training and discipline to avoid where mustard gas had, uh, had been sprayed. So there was no, uh, no, no universal issue of something like an NEC suit that we saw in the uh, post-Second World War era. So that brings me on to my next question. Well, what was the tactical utility of employing um, sort of chemical weapons on the battlefield? What did an attacker seek to achieve by the use of these weapons versus maybe other weapons in their arsenal? Well, chemical weapons are turned to, to solve this very specific problem of static warfare and the, and the trench warfare deadlock and to dislodge soldiers from their defensive positions. So it's very much a weapon of its time and of its place. And uh, after the first cloud gas attack, um, it, um, it became apparent that these cloud gas attacks are not really a good accompaniment to an infantry assault. You can't uh, expect the wind to blow in the right direction at the exact moment that you've got all of your waves of follow-up troops, assault and follow-up troops to take advantage of the attack. And the Germans realised this in April 1915. The British realised it for themselves when they tried to do the same thing at uh, the Battle of Luz in September of 1915. Um, cylinder gas, cloud gas, is not a good way of making a set-piece attack. And hence the Germans turned gas shell bombardments. And in June 1916 at Verdun, they try recreating a gas cloud, creating a gas cloud using thousands of shells, increasing the numbers so that by June 1916, they fired uh, over 100,000 diphosgene shells in one bombardment. And it enables them to take some positions in the Verdun battlefield, but they can't do much more after that. Uh, they haven't got the men to, to, to follow up. So the sheer quantity of shells needed saw a shift to using gas shells to disrupt work behind the lines, harassment fire, just simply making soldiers wear their gas masks for long periods. The British uh, continued using this kind of harassment approach cloud well because the uh, British hadn't got so many uh, shells to spare, uh, even after the Germans and the French had uh, discontinued them. And the British would target uh, German divisions in otherwise quiet sectors. So, for example, the loose um, sector, fairly quiet, comparatively quiet in 1916, and the, uh, and the British would, would continually try to gas the Germans, uh, identifying divisions that they knew had been pulled out of, say, Verdun or the Somme to prevent them from getting any rest. And this, this policy of harassment became a major part of warfare. Uh, increasingly, also, uh, counter-battery fire was a very significant use of chemical weapons, especially with tear gas. The British had developed uh, a form of tear gas at um, Imperial College, 
uh, before uh, before uh, April of 1915, developed this uh, this chemical in uh, February 1915, uh, known as SK after the South Kensington uh, location of uh, Imperial College. And SK was a very effective gas, and it was the main counter-battery uh, chemical weapon to the end of the war for, for the British. Uh, mustard gas, when it comes in, also is very effective as a, a counter-battery weapon. Uh, and I mentioned, the, obviously, the Livins projector as well. Uh, in terms of the specific effect of the Livins projector and other projectors, uh, maybe the very effective early use of the Livins projector was at Wyravine on the Somme. If you visited the Beaumont Hamel Newfoundland Memorial Park, you'll know that there is this deep natural cleft immediately behind the German positions. And the Livins projector was used to hurl a quantity of uh, phosgene and chlorine gas into that ravine. Uh, it seeped into the German dugouts and killed or injured the German reserve troops uh, the day before the British assault, 13th of November uh, 1916. The Germans quickly picked up on the Livins projector, produced their own version and used it for a spectacular chemical attack uh, on the Asonzo Italian front, Caporetto, October 1917. Uh, what was probably the most effective chemical of the war, whereby they did something similar to what the British had done at Wyravine, a slightly larger scale, uh, targeted a ravine behind the Italian position, filled it with phosgene and left the line completely open for Austrian troops to advance. So mustard gas, something different again, as I've mentioned, it, uh, it caused this uh, horrible blistering, temporary blindness, it actually killed very few, but it injured thousands of troops. And in fact, if I uh, perhaps if talk about the, the, the development of German, attack, uh, German um, tactics, because with mustard gas, the Germans have something of a dilemma. They had found a weapon which unexpectedly then had uh, a very effective capability for injury, but also persistency in that it hung around trench hole, uh, trenches and shell holes for uh, several days, uh, possibly even a, a week or more. And that meant that it wasn't really very useful for using where you were specifically going to attack. What you need for when you're going to attack are, are, are chemicals that will quite quickly disperse, which have a low persistency. So after using uh, mustard gas in July 1917, it took the Germans a while to develop offensive artillery fire plans, which used the various type chemicals they now had available. So they first used a new method, September 1917, at, at Riga, uh, attack on the, the Duna bridgehead, associated with Colonel Bruckmuller, uh, the German uh, artillery uh, uh, tactician. And they come to be known as colour shoots or bunches, because the Germans have to work out a way of simplifying this very complex range of chemicals they've now got available. Uh, and so they colour code them. So they have, for, for the purposes of this attack, they use three different types of shells. You've got Blue Cross shells, which contain the sensory irritant that's going to penetrate the Allied gas mask filters, causing soldiers to tear off their masks. And they also come to uh, lethal lung irritant shells used at the same time, diphosgene. And these are colour-coded green, green cross shells. So Blue Cross and Green Cross are used at the same time for the area that is actually going to be attacked. Whereas on the flanks, you'll use your mustard gas, which are yellow cross, code yellow cross. Mustard gas renders the territory impassable, but you're not going to attack on that ground. So if you were to, to, to mark your map, your attack plan, with the colours of your uh, chemical shells in the area where you're attacking, you'll have blue and green shells. And on the flanks where you're not going to attack, you'll have yellow cross. So these are quite complex. You're trying to simplify a very complex process. And it works when they've got time to plan the attacks in March and April of 1918. By the 100 days period of 1918, with the final Allied advance, it's it's impossible for Germans to, to use these complex uh, tactics. Uh, mustard gas was actually less successful at preventing the Allied advance than it should have been, uh, because, uh, as I mentioned, Allied troops had learned 
to uh, avoid, to, to some extent, contamination. And the German organization supply was just breaking down. So by the end of the war, once mobility is restored, chemical warfare has far less utility. It's really suited to static position warfare. So that brings me to my next question. What was the level of casualties caused by chemical weapons during the Great War? Well, it's impossible to know, and people in uh, recent years have studied it in great detail. In fact, between the wars, it was studied as well, because it was rather crucial in terms of arguing either you know, for or against the utility of chemical weapons. Generally, casualty rates were exaggerated. So, for example, after the first German lethal gas attack at the 22nd of April attack, uh, the Allies habitually gave a figure of 6,000 dead from that attack, uh, whereas the figure is, is probably less than 1,000. And it was for propaganda reasons. Uh, uh, propaganda led has led to the exaggeration of the lethality of chemical weapons, but also perhaps their, their effectiveness generally. So the best estimate casualties during the First World War is perhaps half a million soldiers killed or uh, injured by chemical weapons. Actual deaths estimated very roughly at 25,000. And this is much lower, these best estimates by uh, serious uh, academics, much lower than the more popular figures that might be banned about. So 25,000 dead, that represents just about 0.2 or 0.3 of the total battlefield deaths during the First World War. So I mentioned that you know my, my, my interest started in warfare because it seemed to exemplify the horror. That death rate is actually is suggesting that actually it plays a very small part, a very small part in the First World War. Uh, that's not to say it did play a small part because it was a massive part in the soldiers' experience. Uh, British troops suffered 186,000 gas casualties, of which just under 6,000 died. So that's three, just over 3% uh, of uh, deaths. It's 0.65% of total British war dead, actually. Um, and amongst the Allies, France, 30,000 casualties. USA, 73,000. Germany, 107,000 casualties. These are all quite small proportions of the total uh, wounded, but also in terms of the death rate as well, quite quite low. Um, so as I said, it's, it's, the casualty rate is not high, apparently speaking. However, in terms of the experience of the ordinary soldier and the way that by 1918 chemical warfare was integrated into warfare, um, it maybe doesn't give you the full impression because um, it was very much a, a way of life and death for, for soldiers on the battlefield during the war. Which brings me to my penultimate question. How would you assess the military utility of chemical weapons uh, used during the First World War? So yes, it does lead on to the casualty figure. Uh, one of the, the, the feature of chemical weapons is that when, when a new weapon is first used on the battlefield, it very seldom behaved as it was supposed to. And frequently, the chemical weapons that were tried didn't work very well or at all. There were hundreds of different chemicals that were deployed. And the ones I've, ones I've mentioned are simply the ones that became the most successful. Uh, and they were always heavily dependent on factors like the weather. Uh, only effective in certain circumstances. So there were certainly these dramatic successes that I've mentioned, Ypres 1915, Caporetto 1917, also the German 1918 offensives and the use of the, uh, the, the so-called colour shoots. But I think you could say, although it caused local success, in some cases, say at Caporetto, that was a, uh, a very massive local success, it wasn't ever decisive. Uh, the, the Italian front was stabilised after Caporetto and it was very quickly stabilised at Ypres and also, you know, after the 1918 offences as well. And also, as I've, as I've mentioned, chemical warfare was not suited to the mobile warfare at the end of the war, which was also pointing to the, the, the future of warfare in the Second World War. Um, and that may be uh, perhaps the effectiveness of chemical warfare or the non-effectiveness maybe leads on to why chemical weapons weren't used after the war. Um, and I think 
that that question is linked because on the one hand there's a, an argument that chemical weapons were so horribly effective that everyone decided they couldn't be used again and I'd say that actually the, the reverse is true. They were good but they weren't that bad. The complications and the inconveniences of using chemical weapons did not really justify such effect as they did give on the battlefield. It just made the life of the ordinary soldier even more miserable than it already was. And finally Simon, where can people learn more about your work? Well, uh, I've written a, a short book on gas warfare published by Osprey, which I wrote some years ago. Um, just trying to remember the title of it. It's, it's called something like World War One gas, gas Warfare and Tactics, I think. Uh, anyway, you can find that quite easily. And that was designed as a really a primer on gas warfare because I felt that there was still this need for kind of simple explanation of gas warfare for perhaps the, the general historian, whether they're studying operational history or um, uh, the experience of a soldier. I've also put a lot of articles on my blog as well, Sun Jones Historian, that you'll find uh, expanding the ideas that I've been talking about and also looking, say, specifically at the first use of mustard gas or that uh, use of chemical weapons from the air in uh, in 1919. Uh, but there's also, in recent years, have been good books that have come out, The perhaps the, the standard definitive work, quite difficult to get hold of now, by L.F. Harbour, amazingly the son of uh, Fritz Harbour, also was a very distinguished historian of uh, the chemical industry, The Poisonous Cloud, if you can find that in a library, published in 1986. But there's been other uh, good books more recently, Mick Cook's book, No Place to Run, is good, and there's probably some other good ones that I'm uh, missing out as well. Uh, my blog does have uh, uh, a lot of references and web uh, uh, and uh, bibliography as well. Simon, thank you very much for your time. OK, thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>